made himself equal to God. So when the term Son of God is used in reference to the person of Jesus, it is not talking about God having a child. It is talking about Jesus making a claim of equality. It is who He is in essence. And therefore, when He claims to be the Son of God, it is a blasphemous claim to to this courtroom. It was a claim of deity. He is claiming, I am of the same nature as God. Let me give you a, another example from the person of Judas, the person who betrayed Jesus. He was known as the son of perdition. Now, when perdition means uh, destruction or waste. So when we refer to Judas as a son of perdition, we're not saying perdition had a child. We're saying that he is equal to, or in essence, he, he bears the image and the likeness and the equality with destruction and waste. He manifests, he is the manifestation, the very manifestation of destruction or waste. So there we see the opposite. He is a son of perdition. He manifests destruction or waste. When Jesus says, I am the son of God, He's saying, I manifest that very one. In John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, we learn that Jesus is the creator of all things. Jesus is the creator of all things. And then in John, he is God. It clearly says that Jesus is God. And then in chapter 1, John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, and the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is, in essence, is the very image and nature of God in human flesh. Now, here's the thing. Anybody can make this claim, can't they? Anybody can make that claim. Wilson Bushara, Sun Myung Moon, Henry Christo, Jim Jones, among many, many others, claimed to be God. Lots of, and that's, I just gave you four. Anyone can make that claim. I can make that claim. You can make that claim. People do make that claim. The issue here is, and so the issue then is, can the claim be supported? Jesus made the claim to be the Son of God. He was not the first person to claim divinity. Many people had claimed divinity before him, and many people have claimed divinity after him. The question is, is he the Son of God? Can the claim be supported? The resurrection validates the claim. He was declared to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. The resurrection validates his claim to be God and it validates all the other claims that he made. So, as God, Jesus has a rightful claim on all of us. That is, he has the right to make demands and he has the right to make promises. He has the right to obligate himself to us and he has the right to establish obligations from us. Things like love your neighbor, Things like love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He has the right to make those 
those obligations to us, those demands. He has the right to demand that we turn from greed. He has the right to demand that we give to the poor. He has the right to say, repent or you too shall perish. And there is authority in what he states. Now many, many people bristle at the idea of anyone being Lord over them. I'm the Lord of my own life. I will not let this man rule over me. But Jesus, as the Son of God, has a right to make those claims and is the things that he says are authoritative. Jesus made many claims. Repent and believe the gospel. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. We can go through. Jesus made all kinds of claims. Incredible claims. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this, that the person who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise man who builds his house upon the rock and the rains come and the winds rose and the house stood. The person who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains and the winds came and great was its destruction. That's an amazing claim, don't you think? If I get up here and I say, you know, you who hear these words of mine and do them, you are like, it's like, really? Jesus is making a claim, a huge claim. My words, you can build your life upon. You should, not could, you should, you ought to build your life upon these words of mine. Here's another thing he said in the Sermon on the Mount, one that we we talk about fairly frequently. You've heard it said that you shall not commit murder. Who said that? God. But I say to you, really? Oh my goodness. But I say to you, can you imagine any human person getting up and saying, God says don't murder. Let me tell you what I say. That's an amazing claim. Jesus made all sorts of fantastic claims. Perhaps here it is appropriate to quote the often quoted C.S. Lewis on this matter, where he says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says that he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. 
or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. The resurrection proves that he is the Son of God. We've defined that term. The resurrection proves his claims to be the Son of God. That's truth number one. Truth number two. The resurrection secures our justification. The resurrection secures our justification. I think I have... So in Romans 4.42, I have two passages of text that, that, that I want to, to look at. But the first one is Romans 4.24. Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Note this. Jesus our Lord was delivered up, speaking of crucifixion, his death, and was raised for our justification. So... Once again, we need to define our terms because we use religious jargon, Christian jargon, and we should at least know what we are talking about. We use the term justification quite often. You will hear it in this church fairly often. We should know what it is that we are talking about. If he was raised for our justification, what does that mean? Well, justification is a legal term. It is a term of the courtroom. And it's really simple. It just means to declare not guilty. It is a declaration. When one says that they have been justified, this is speaking of a declaration that has been made. It is a declaration made that they are not guilty. It is a judge in a courtroom with a defendant in front of him and he slams down his gavel and he says, you, the defendant, are not guilty. You're free to go. That's justification, a declaration. It is a declaration at a point in time where a person is declared not guilty. So resurrection secures a not guilty verdict. He was delivered for our sins and raised for our not guilty verdict. Then we see over here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you have, you're still in your sins. You've not been declared not guilty. That declaration has never happened. If Christ has not been raised, you are still a guilty person who will stand before a holy God. In other words, if Christ has not been raised, we gain no benefit from our faith we would still be under God's curse. If Christ has not been raised, we we might as well not believe you have a vain faith in a dead Christ, leaving you no better off. Death retains its mastery. Death is Lord. Your faith has no meaningful effect. You may say, well, my faith gives me peace and calmness and it helps me relax. And it, um, yeah, well, so does taking 10 deep breaths. 
lots of faiths, lots of beliefs, lots of religions can give you a sense of calm, a sense of peace, a sense of satisfaction, perhaps even a sense of purpose. Christ came to save his people from their sins. Christ died for sins, to bear and atone for our sins. Death was the payment. Resurrection assures that the payment was received and sufficient. Charlie often says that the death of Christ on the cross was the payment for sins and the resurrection was the declaration that the check cleared. Thank you, Charlie. So the death of the resurrection of Christ secures our not guilty verdict. If you are in Christ, Christ, God has declared you not guilty. This is why when we get to Romans chapter 8, what an amazing statement. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? There's the rhetorical question that Paul then answers. It's God who justifies. Do you get it? Who can bring a charge against God's people? God is the one who has declared them not guilty. God is the one who has slammed down his gavel and said, the charges that have been brought to me, I've already declared this person not guilty. God is the highest court in the land. He is the judge of the highest court in all of the universe. And he has declared his people not guilty. Are you in Christ? Saints, you are not guilty. God has declared you not guilty. The resurrection secures our justification. That's truth number two. Truth number three is that Jesus lives. Truth number three is that Jesus lives. The resurrection assures us that Jesus lives. Let me uh, read for you in Hebrews chapter 7.25. If you want, you can turn there. This is a, a, I'm just kind of coming into the middle of this very, very um, significant passage of text. Um, and I won't, I, don't, I won't explain the entire thing, but let's look at verse 25. Consequently, he, speaking of Christ, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. There's a couple things here. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through faith through him since he always lives to make intercession so first of all let's camp on this idea that Christ lives ever lives to make intercession what is intercession intercession um, is is acting as a go-between, a mediator. So in other words, he ever lives to make intercession. Christ is not simply alive. So he rose from the dead and we say, yeah, he's alive. Absolutely. This text, though, says there is a purpose to his living. In other words, he is not simply alive and disengaged from his creation. Rather, he lives in an active sense. In other words, he's doing stuff. Christ is alive and he's doing stuff. He continues to work as the one with all authority in heaven and earth. He is interceding. This is the work of a priest. He is a mediator. 
We often refer to the three offices of Christ. We talked about this on Wednesday night, uh, that Christ is prophet, priest, and king. And here we see his priestly role interceding, um, coming in between two parties so that they are at peace with one another. He stands between men and the Father and reconciles guilty humans in the sight of a holy God. How can a guilty person stand before a holy God? Well, that's a big question. But one of the reasons is we have a faithful, living, alive mediator who is interceding forever on our behalf. This is being contrasted in the book of Hebrews with earthly priests and sacrifices that are temporal. His work is... Jesus' work is complete. It is lacking nothing. It is no halfway measure. He saves to the uttermost. That is, he is able. He is able to do what? To save to the uttermost. Why? Because he's alive. And he is active. And he is doing stuff. And what is he doing? He ever lives to make intercession on our behalf. He is able to completely and forever save us. What is the measure of the Savior's ability? How far is he able to save? To the uttermost. So let me speak to this church, and if those who are listening now live or those who might listen um, to the recording on YouTube. The seriousness and the amount of one's sin is no opposition to the saving work of Christ. The seriousness and the amount, the quantity of one's sin is no opposition to the saving work of Christ. Have you gone to the uttermost of human depravity? Have you gone to the uttermost of human depravity? Have you taken the life of another? Have you taken the life of more than one? In rage or in jealousy? Perhaps behind the wheel of a car while you were drunk or inebriated some way and you ran and hit another vehicle or another person and they perished. Have you done that? Perhaps in fear or from pressure, did you take the life of a child before she was born? He lives and he is able to save to the uttermost. Have you journeyed to the uttermost to, to the uttermost of sin? If you have, you have not crossed the boundary of his saving ability. He saves to the uttermost. You have not outsinned the grace of God. Where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. He is able to save to the uttermost. Yes, you who have gone and journeyed to the uttermost of depravity. Have you rejected him to the uttermost? Have you heard the gospel and turned away? From your youth up, you've heard this message over and over and over again. And you've spurned the tears of your praying mother and grandmother, how they pled for you, how they pled with you, and how you broke their hearts by your rejection of the gospel message. You've heard countless sermons about sin and righteousness and judgment, and you arose from the pew unchanged. You may have rejected Christ to the uttermost, but I want to assure you, he is able to save to the uttermost. Do you despair to the uttermost? 
That you wish that you were dead and that hell itself would be better than the torment each day brings. Let me share these words. Hope. Hope for Christ is alive and able to save to the uttermost. Christian, are you burdened with trial? Weighed down by temptation? Do you feel as though God has abandoned you? He saved you to the uttermost. And he will not abandon you now. He died while you were a sinner. Now that you are his child, he will not cease to uphold you. Church, he lives and he is able to save to the uttermost. Take courage and take hope in these words. This is the third truth of the resurrection. The fourth truth of the resurrection is that the resurrection secures our future. The resurrection secures our future. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 23, um, I know I've read a, a little bit from 1 Corinthians and we will be there soon um, as in our study of 1 Corinthians. In cha- fact, chapter 15, verse 20 through 23, mark your calendar, June 26th. We will be here again, and you will probably hear much of this again, but it will be no burden for me to say it again, and I pray that it will be no burden for you to hear it again. But the resurrection secures our future. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then those, then then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. I want you to note the emphatic statement of fact that we see here. But in fact... But in fact, this is not Paul's opinion. It is not based on a subjective feeling. It is based in objective fact. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. To be certain of Christ's resurrection then is to be certain of your own. It says here that Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What an important statement that is. First fruits, we, we draw this idea, this picture from Leviticus chapter 23. It was a, a, a time where in an agrarian society that the farmer would go and they would, um, the first part of their crop had come up and they would gather a portion of this crop and they would bring it to the temple, to the priest, and they would dedicate this first part of their crop Here's the thing. These are first fruits. The first fruits are not the harvest. Get that. The first fruits are not the harvest. They are just what they are. The first fruits. They are the first part of the harvest, but they foreshadow the fact that there is a complete and full harvest yet to come. This is not everything. This is not all my crops. This is just the first part of them. But it is a testimony that there is a great harvest yet to come. They were, in a sense, the guarantee, the pledge that more would follow and foreshadowed a future harvest. Jesus is the first fruits. That is, he is the first one to raise from the dead, but he's not the full harvest. 
there's going to be a great harvest of resurrection. Like I said, truth four secures our future. To be certain of Christ's resurrection is to be certain of our own. He was the pledge, the guarantee that there would be a harvest of resurrection. Jesus is the first to be resurrected and therefore the guarantee of a harvest of resurrection. Folks, if you're in Christ, you will be raised from the dead. Why? Christ the first fruits has been raised from the dead. Now, some people might object and say, wait a second, how can Jesus be the first person raised, raised from the dead? I think Lazarus and a whole bunch of other people were raised from the dead. They were not resurrected. They were resuscitated. They were brought back to life, but they died again and they are awaiting resurrection. Resurrection is a whole new... Uh, we'll get there when we get, after June 26th. But uh, think of Jesus' body after he was resurrected wasn't just him coming back to life in his old body. It was a glorified new body. I want you to understand that when the eternal state, our eternal state, is not to live eternally as disembodied spirits floating around on a cloud. That is not the Christian hope. The Christian hope is that we will be raised from the dead, that this body will be resurrected. It will be a body similar in the sense that Jesus had a body after his resurrection. Brought back to life. Even if you died centuries ago and your body has dissolved in its dust, that body will still be resurrected. I want you to note the timing of this first fruits, of the resurrection of first fruits. In the Jewish, the Jewish calendar, there were two festivals that were celebrated back to back. The first one was the, was the holiday of Passover. And what happened on Passover? Happened on a Friday. The sacrificial lamb that was, was slain to save the people from death. The lamb was slain and then there was a Sabbath where nothing happened and then there was the festival of first fruits. That's the Jewish calendar. Sabbath where the sacrificial lamb was slain to save from death, a Sabbath's rest, and then the celebration, the offering of first fruits. It is no coincidence, church, it is no coincidence that on Passover, Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, was slain to save us from death. Saturday was a Sabbath rest, and Sunday he offered himself as the first fruits of those who would rise from the dead. Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. In Adam and Christ, we should be able to understand this. Sometimes people struggle with this idea 
Um, but it should be very simple for those of us who live in the United States to understand this concept. Not every our country. We live in a country with a representative with a representative government. That is, we elect an individual to or individuals to go and represent our interests, whether it be local or state. That person now represents us. We have voted to say, you go and represent the interests of our state, the interests of our town. Now, if the person does a good job, we all benefit. And if the person does a poor job, we all suffer. In Adam, our representative, we all died. Adam sinned, he was our representative, and we died. In Christ, as our representative, all live. We just say this, that we discussed this on Wednesday night a couple of weeks ago. Nelson handled this, and he did a fabulous job dealing with this idea of federal headship. I would encourage you to go and listen to the YouTube uh, um, on on that as as on federal headship, Adam, our federal head, sinned, and we fell in, and he represented us. But in Christ, he he was sinless. He resurrected. He was resurrected, and he lives. All who are in Christ live. So. <clears throat> Paul talks about two spheres. We are either in Adam and we receive all that Adam achieved. What did Adam achieve? Sin and death. Or we are in the sphere of Christ and we receive all that he has achieved. By the way, there is no in-between sphere. Two spheres in Adam and in Christ. In Christ, we receive all of the benefits that he achieved, life everlasting. In Adam, all die, so in Christ, all shall be made alive. By birth, we are in Adam. By new birth, we are placed in Christ. I would exhort you to be certain that you are in Christ. And then Paul talks about the order of the resurrection. Christ first, then those who are in Christ at his second coming. Those are the four truths that I wanted to put forth today. The four truths are that, number one, the resurrection proves that Christ is the Son of God. The resurrection proves that we are justified, declared not guilty. The resurrection proves that Christ lives and he is doing stuff. He is saving to the uttermost. And finally, Christ's resurrection secures our resurrection. I'll conclude with this. At Christmas, we celebrate that God put on flesh and dwelt among us, that God became incarnate, and we called his name Jesus for he would save his people from their sins. And at Easter, we celebrate that Jesus is that Savior of the world. 
that the purpose for which he came was accomplished. He came to save his people from their sins. And in his death, burial, and resurrection, he did exactly that. Mission accomplished. It is finished. Father, we come before you this day and we thank you for the grace and mercies that we have in Christ. We celebrate this day. We rejoice this day. We remember this day, Lord God. And next Sunday, the first day of the week, when we gather again, we will once again celebrate Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. But today, Lord God, as we reflect on this time, we remember your great love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And we are now declared not guilty. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who can condemn? Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing.